Hello, Criminal Mischief Nation. For this week's show, we have something special for you to enjoy. We're dropping episode one of the new season three of Brandon's hit podcast, The Devil Within. In season three, Brandon transports us back in time to New York in the 1970s, when the Big Apple was near the brink of economic collapse, while at the same time the city is being terrorized by a faceless, all-too-human monster known only as the Son of Sam, a vicious killer whose reign of terror kept the city that never sleeps under siege for 13 months, until at long last, David Berkowitz was finally apprehended. Trust me, you can expect a lot of twists and turns in season three as Brandon unpacks not only the son of Sam's horrible deeds, but also his twisted motivations. So here you go. Enjoy episode one, New York State of Mind. This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. It comes down to reality, and it's fine with me, because I've let it slide. Don't care if it's Chinatown or up on Riverside. I don't have any reasons. I've left them all behind. I'm in a New York state of mind. There are times in our history where circumstances conspire to deliver to the masses great and enduring acts of human achievement. Think of Abraham Lincoln. He was the right man at the right time, surrounded by a team that challenged and supported him in the great and bloody arena of the American Civil War. He was able to navigate a fractured nation through those darkest of times into the light of a limitless American future. Or the great artist Michelangelo Bonarotti, a singular talent, a creative genius, tortured by his own religious convictions, yet supported by the never-ending patronage of the Church of Rome. His arena was nothing less than the Renaissance, and he stood at the leading edge of artistic immortality. The right person in the right environment has proven throughout history to be the secret sauce when it comes to human achievement. But there's an opposing side to that coin, a dark and sinister side that, while terrifying and grotesque, is no less true. A gruesome story leads off our newscast. Milwaukee police found body parts in a Northside apartment, and now they wonder if they've uncovered some kind of death factory. Consider Jeffrey Dahmer, the madman who tortured, murdered, and cannibalized 17 young men over a 13-year period beginning in 1978. His repressed sexual desires, combined with alcohol abuse and a psychotic disorder, proved to be a deadly and demented mixture when released into his chosen arena, the gay bars of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Police found parts of bodies leading them to believe the man they arrested is a mass murderer. From our investigation, we feel that this individual strongly is involved in other homicides The officers were stopped by an individual who claimed he was in the apartment and became engaged in a dispute with the owner of the apartment. 
A 31-year-old man was arrested at that apartment. The Milwaukee County Medical Examiner will release more details on this case this morning at 10 o'clock. But a police lieutenant tells us he suspects this case could get national attention and could be the most gruesome case we have seen in Milwaukee in years. Or Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer, a quiet and deliberate man who terrorized the Pacific Northwest for almost 20 years and took the lives of at least 49 young women. Called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies, five of them were pulled from this river. Since then, seven more bodies have been discovered nearby, all those of young prostitutes, according to police. And the number of missing increases steadily. Two were added to the list this week. Ridgway thrived in the arena known as the SeaTac Strip, a dirty, anonymous stretch of the Pacific Highway South on the outskirts of Seattle, known for prostitution. All the victims worked this strip near the Seattle airport, crammed with hotels, motels, and strip joints. Angry residents are demanding police do more to stop the killings. Police say the victims are similar, runaways, very young, disturbed. Most were strangled, their bodies left nude. A police task force has little hard evidence, but it thinks a single psychopathic killer is responsible. However, it would be illogical and improper from an investigative perspective to become that tunnel vision and exclude the possibility of any copycat crimes or the possibility of a multiple suspect. Police suspect other prostitutes might be able to provide leads, but because of their profession, they've been uncooperative. Carolyn Osorio is a veteran Seattle-based journalist and host of the podcast, The Shadow Girls, which offers a comprehensive look at the Green River Killer and his victims. When I was doing my research for The Shadow Girls, you know, Seattle was very much a character in the events that unfolded. Basically back in the 80s, Boeing was the largest employer in the state. But by, and by the early 1980s, Boeing was still in like a recovery mode from this Boeing bus that happened back in the early 70s. That basically put Seattle into a depression. A billboard was actually erected right by SeaTac, Pacific Highway South, that said, will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? And it was meant to be kind of a joke because that's how depressed the economy was. So, the, so it was recovering, but you know, you had the war on drugs, which the police were failing miserably at. You had prostitution running rampant. And during this time period, they knew they weren't going to solve prostitution or drugs, right? And so what they did was they, they tried to push it to certain spots. And Pacific Highway South was one of these spots. And they were still arrested during these, you know, John patrols and prostitution busts. But they, they knew they weren't going to solve this problem because they didn't have any resources or, or very, very little resources to actually help sex workers get out of the business, many of whom were actually young girls. And so you had this kind of melting pot happening on Pacific Highway South, which was the perfect breeding ground for somebody like Gary Ridgway. It's not just the individual, not always. Often, it's the meeting of an individual with a specific environment and at a specific time that results in incredible events either incredibly positive or incredibly negative. Police have been engaged in an intensive hunt for a man known as the 44 caliber killer. And, and there's widespread apprehension that his crime spree is not over. For this season of The Devil Within, rather than focusing on a single isolated event, 
we'll dive into a terrifying 13-month period in the mid-1970s. Killer has struck five more times. Most of the victims have been young women with shoulder-length dark brown hair who were gunned down as they sat in parked cars or walked the sidewalks of the Bronx and Queens. A time that was filled with anxiety and apprehension, fear and terror. A time when one man was able to bring the greatest city in the world to its knees. They're really scared, and I mean when they're scared, that's all they do is talk about the, the killer. I won't walk home anymore in the dark. A manhunt intensified. A young couple was shot and wounded while sitting in a parked car. Because starting in the summer of 1976, the city that never sleeps was haunted by the nightmare of a real-life boogeyman roaming her streets. Police believe it was the work of the man called the 44 caliber killer. Police would not say they are any closer to finding the killer. If you're asking whether we have any indication of who he is or where he might be, the answer is no. Welcome back to The Devil Within. This is the third installment, A Season in Hell. I'm your host, Brandon Morgan, and you're listening to Episode 1, New York State of Mind. The 4th of July is an annual rite of summer in the United States. Backyard barbecues, parties on the beach, a long weekend away from work. In 1976, the holiday took on a much more significant meaning. We, as Americans, were celebrating more than just our release from the tyrannical rule of Great Britain's King George III. We were celebrating the bicentennial, 200 years of the American experiment that saw a struggling group of colonies in the New World rise to become the greatest democratic republic the world had ever seen. But despite the parties and the state-sponsored joy being experienced in nearly every American city, there was one man. Disturbed and alone, who was fighting a different kind of war. Not for freedom from oppression or the right to self-govern, his was a battle for his very soul, a battle that he would lose. New York City was a very different place in the mid to late 1970s. Different, that is, to the New York City of today. But it didn't happen overnight. The decay that would seem ubiquitous by 1976 began more than two decades earlier. After World War II, New York City experienced a massive surge in global prominence. The United Nations chose Manhattan for its headquarters. Wall Street became the dominant financial center of the Western world. The great artists of the abstract expressionist movement made New York City their home. And from 1949 through 1953, the New York Yankees would win five consecutive World Series titles. But the troubles had already begun. If you looked closely, you would have been able to detect a slow but steady exodus of New Yorkers, leaving the city for the suburbs of Connecticut, New Jersey, New York State, and Pennsylvania. 
the resulting loss of tax revenue, abandoned housing complexes, and lack of available workforce proved to be a recipe for disaster, or at worst, dystopia. In June of 1953, as the Bronx Bombers were barreling toward another championship, across the city in Brooklyn, a child was born. A child named Richard David Falco. That name may not be familiar to you, and for good reason. His birth name belonged to a man who was not his father, a revelation that would propel this child into eventual infamy. It was his adopted name that would become synonymous the world over with evil. But more on that in a minute. By the mid-1960s, the city basically came to a standstill with a series of labor strikes. Beginning with the transit strike that shut down subway and bus service, followed by the teachers' union strike, which closed the schools. And finally, in 1968, there was a massive sanitation strike that left mountains of garbage baking in the sun on the streets and sidewalks of New York. The NYPD didn't officially strike, but did engage in a, quote, slowdown, a practice where employees do their work less efficiently, on purpose, as a warning to management that a strike could be imminent. And the firefighters' union, they just threatened to strike outright. In the summer of 1969, while the world watched in awe as men, American men, walked on the moon, the west side of Lower Manhattan erupted into a war zone with the Stonewall Riots, a watershed moment in the history of the gay rights movement after a confrontation between police and gay rights activists outside the Stonewall Inn escalated into violence. Dr. Peter Vronsky of Toronto, Canada, is an expert in the field of espionage and international relations, which has nothing to do with our story. But the man has a very curious side hustle. I'm Peter Vronsky. Uh, essentially, I track um, the history and movement of serial killers in the past. I'm not a profiler. I'm not an expert on serial killers. Um, but I do have expertise, at least in their history. Mr. Vronsky was a young documentarian in New York City in the 1970s and witnessed a lot of this firsthand. You know, it's interesting because I was in New York in those years. I was not aware of serial killers until I encountered one. I'm in New York at that time shooting documentaries. Um, you're, you're kind of focused on the story you were doing. At that time in 77, I was shooting the rise of punk rock. Um, mostly I was in the Bowery uh, at CBGB's, a little bit in the Times Square area, but in the Son of Sam years, well, it, uh, <laughs> um, it was um, anarchistic, total anarchy. The city was going bankrupt. Uh, there were garbage strikes. Police were underfunded. The fire department was underfunded. Welfare, everything was underfunded. I mean, paranoid crack era hadn't hit yet. Um, and in some ways, I think crack as well destroyed a lot of the street life. 
it was a city of street life at that point. Um, you know, cops, you'd see cops drinking beer out of a paper bag and uh, you know, with the long sideburns and the Knapp Commission was uh, just winding up its investigation. Corruption was um, unbelievable in the city. It looked dangerous. It, it probably now, when you think about it, it certainly wasn't as dangerous as it appeared. For example, you know, people were very much afraid to travel on a subway at night, and, and they would cluster where the motorman's cabin is. But um, most of the rapes and murders on the subways were occurring in um, daylight between 4 and 8 p.m., rush hour. Uh, so, so by midnight, everybody goes home. Uh, but of course, at night, it just feels creepier. It looks creepier. It was rough and um, dirty, covered in graffiti, of course. The choice of drugs on the street at that time, mostly, you know, there was stuff like heroin that kind of put people to sleep. They would nod off until they needed more. The worst drug on the street at that point was, you know, angel dust, PCP, that kind of was the the scariest stuff because you could almost smell it. You smell it on the subway. Even cops were scared of it. Still are today. The early 70s only saw the city plunge deeper into a morass of bureaucracy, crime, and moral decay. In 1971, NYPD detective Frank Serpico exposed widespread corruption within the police department when he testified to the Knapp Commission. This was a staggering blow to an already embattled NYPD, and it would be years before public trust was restored. There were some bright spots, though. One of the main ones was the World Trade Center being completed in 1972 and officially became the tallest buildings on the planet. Until the Sears Tower opened a year later. On a national level, things weren't much better. Public trust in our federal government had bottomed out with Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal, which just happened to coincide with a global recession of 1973 that officially marked the end of the post-World War II economic expansion. There was a highly publicized oil crisis, a lesser known but equally destructive steel crisis, and a stock market crash in 1974 that created a bear market which saw the Dow Jones Industrial Average lose more than 45% of its value. Inflation was up, unemployment was up, crime was up, consumer confidence was in the gutter. Nationally, Americans were seeing conditions unheard of since the Great Depression. To be fair, conditions were not on par with Depression-era levels. But it sure felt like it in New York. In January of 1974, Abraham Beam, the son of Polish immigrants, became the 104th mayor of New York City. Raised on the Lower East Side and a graduate of PS160, Beam would receive an undergraduate degree in business and serve two terms as comptroller before becoming mayor. The honeymoon phase of his administration wouldn't last long, as he almost immediately faced a crippling financial crisis, the worst in the city's history that made New York City declaring bankruptcy a very real possibility. The city was almost half a billion dollars in debt, and Mayor Beam's cost-cutting measures of laying off city workers, 
freezing salaries, and budget reconfigurations barely made a dent. There was a single day, October 17, 1975, where Beam issued a statement that New York City didn't have the funds to maintain basic functions and implored the residents to take necessary steps to preserve their own well-being. This was New York City, and not all that long ago. The mayor of the largest city in America basically told its citizens, hey, we're broke, you're on your own, do what you gotta do. Within a year, the bicentennial celebrations were underway, and President Ford was welcomed by the city he once rejected, but eventually delivered from financial ruin and worldwide embarrassment. More on that in a minute. Ford threw out the first pitch at Shea Stadium on July 4th and then watched the Mets beat the Cubs. Tall ships from around the world congregated in New York Harbor to celebrate America's birthday, and the Statue of Liberty paid host to a massive, iconic fireworks display. While a city struggling to remain solvent might seem a curious choice to host these celebrations, the decision was made to keep up appearances. The truth, though, was plain to see for anyone driving through the boroughs and to the people who actually lived there. Survival was their primary concern. It has been widely speculated that the years comprising the early to mid-1970s were among the most difficult that the city had ever experienced. Human history is replete with instances of beauty born from struggle, of times of great darkness followed by an explosion of progress, technologies developed for war that benefit a people in times of peace, the Italian Renaissance blooming from the receding tide of the Black Death. For a specific type of person, there is opportunity in despair and the possibility for creativity in the face of uncertainty. This attitude was clearly demonstrated in the Bronx, perhaps the hardest-hit borough of New York City in the mid-1970s. Okay, real quick. Before 1898, New York City consisted of, officially, only the island of Manhattan. The consolidation of 1898 brought in surrounding municipalities into a single government under a new city charter. These municipalities included Brooklyn, to the immediate south of Manhattan, Queens to the east, the Bronx to the north, and Staten Island to the southwest, hugging the New Jersey coastline. The Bronx is the only landlocked borough, representing the southern tip of mainland New York State, separated from Manhattan by the Harlem River. Brooklyn and Queens occupy the western tip of Long Island, and Staten Island sits alone in New York's lower bay. Disco music, with its origins in Philadelphia and New York, had been popular since the late 1960s and became the most popular music and dance genre in American subculture by the early 1970s. But its time in the zeitgeist would be short-lived. Disco, in retrospect, seems to serve as a bridge from jazz music to the emerging behemoth in American pop culture, hip-hop. The Bronx in the mid-1970s, gave birth to the holy trinity of hip-hop music. Cool Herc, Africa Bambata, and Grandmaster Flash. 
these groundbreaking artists would pave the way for the last truly American art form that, in a single generation, would redefine the cultural landscape and become a multi-billion dollar a year industry. With beats inspired by the great jazz solos and lyrics that painted an honest picture of minority oppression, poverty, and defiance, while simultaneously celebrating African-American culture. Hip-hop music struck a chord that spoke to the simmering anger and feelings of hopelessness shared by the residents of New York and the country as a whole. But not everyone took the same path as these talented young musical pioneers. Not everyone chose to use the widespread corruption, financial mismanagement, and decaying infrastructure as an inspiration to create art. At least one man chose a darker path. One man living alone in an apartment just north of the city succumbed to the whispering demons in his head and started planning a grisly crime spree that would take an already fractured city and break it over its knee. If the South Bronx was the epicenter of hip-hop in the late 1970s, then the East Village neighborhood of Manhattan was the dirty, crime-ridden home of the other musical tsunami that was washing over the boroughs. Punk rock. With bands like the Velvet Underground, Sex Pistols, the Ramones, Patti Smith, punk rock was threatening to go mainstream. Vastly different from the discotheques spread out across the city or the house parties in the Bronx, the punk rock scene had clubs, cramped, dark, intimate, and loud. And CBGB's was among the most famous in the world, playing host to every punk band that came through the city. But it was the music's rising popularity that would, at first, be its own worst enemy. Unlike hip-hop, punk rock didn't stay underground for long. And as a result, the aggressive, incendiary, and rebellious art form soon made its way into the crosshairs of the American Christian right and was labeled satanic. Because, of course it was. This condemnation of punk music predated the actual satanic panic of the mid to late 80s by a decade, and the genre thrived despite being targeted by religious groups. But the association with devil worship would remain, although few took the time to listen to the music, and even fewer understood what the accusations even entailed. But the resulting effect had taken hold, and by the summer of 1976, there was an overall feeling of despair, anger, and fear coursing through the city. In the Bronx, there were the angry African-American youths expressing themselves through music. In Manhattan, there were the angry white youths expressing themselves through music. Meanwhile, the adults were doing their best to navigate the most difficult living conditions in the city in 40 years, with fewer cops on the streets, fewer firefighters, and regular and increasing breakdowns in basic social services. The elected officials of New York City seemed powerless to make any of it better, and when the mayor asked for help from Washington, D.C., he was told no. 
Mayors, most from big cities, appealed to the Congressional Joint Economic Committee today for some federal emergency help for New York City, arguing that a New York default would hurt every other city in the country by making it impossible for other cities to borrow money. The state has done all it can. The city has done and is committed to do in the months ahead more of what we've done. And if the federal government does not help us, I think it will find the problem afterwards, which it would have to help us with, much more serious. The mayor has asked for federal guarantees for New York City bonds and notes, and if necessary, emergency loans. The first answer from the Ford administration was a loud, firm no. Those are the years that um, Gerald Ford tells, you know, the famous the headline, Ford to New York, drop dead. Later in the day, the mayors all trooped over to the White House, where, not surprisingly, they found the president and his aides not very sympathetic. After meeting Mr. Ford, a number of the mayors said they were disappointed. Among the messages they heard, a claim by the administration that a New York default, if it happens, would be unfortunate but not important, would not damage the rest of the country. President Ford's denial of federal aid led to the iconic headline in the Daily News. Ford to city. Drop dead. However, facing severe backlash for potentially allowing the nation's largest city to default, federal money was soon approved and New York pulled back from the brink. It's historically interesting, and more than a little sad, to examine the decline of New York City in the 1970s anecdotally. It's something else to see it in raw census data. First, some basic numbers. According to the 1970 U.S. Census, there were just under 8 million people living in the five boroughs of New York spread out over a little more than 300 square miles. Now, 300 square miles may sound like a lot, and it is, but with 8 million residents, it works out to about 30,000 people per square mile. By contrast, take the great state of Montana, just over 1 million residents live in Montana's 147,000 square miles. That works out to 7 people per square mile. Again, New York City, 30,000 people per square mile. Montana, 7 people per square mile. Moving on. Another interesting fact that can be derived from the census data is that New York City is, in many ways, how do I put it, extra American. Most of the demographic numbers for the city are above the national average. New York City, with its proud immigration history, is much more of a melting pot than the rest of the country, including the largest Jewish population outside of Israel, the largest African-American community of any city in the country. 25% of all Indian Americans live in New York, as well as 15% of all Korean Americans, along with the largest Puerto Rican and Italian populations in North America. Now these are just high level numbers, but it's obvious that the great American melting pot is headquartered in New York. The city is also 62% Catholic compared to 44% of the rest of the country. It's also 22% Jewish as opposed to 4% nationally and 3.5% Muslim versus 1% nationally. 
But the real number that still has economists and historians studying the effects of is this. From 1970 to 1980, the population of New York City fell by more than 10% from roughly 8 million to a little over 7 million. Bear in mind that there was still a steady flow of people moving into the city. But even with people moving in, the city still suffered a net loss of a million residents. Also of note, while the population was plummeting, the overall diversity of New York City was skyrocketing. In that same decade, spanning 1970 to 1980, the white population decreased by 15%, while the black and Hispanic populations rose by 25%, and the Asian population more than tripled. Pelham Bay is a neighborhood on the east side of the Bronx, near the Hutchinson River that empties into Long Island Sound. Named for the nearby Pelham Bay Park that was created in 1888, the neighborhood is heavily Italian-American, heavily Catholic, and traditionally among the safest neighborhoods in New York. Even in 1976, when the entire city seemed like a war zone, you could find pockets of calm, these small areas where the darkness hadn't descended, places that still felt like home. Pelham Bay was one of those neighborhoods. But it didn't have a discotheque. For that, you'd have to leave the relative security of streets lined with single-family homes, churches, and kosher delis, and venture into the wild. Early in the morning of July 29, 1976, two friends had just returned to Pelham Bay after a night on the town. Jody Valenti was 19 and Donna Loria was 18. The girls were best friends and were both pursuing careers in the medical field. Jody was a nursing student and Donna was in training to be a first responder as a New York City paramedic. They had spent the hot midsummer evening dancing at a disco club in New Rochelle, a city in neighboring Westchester County. The girls drove back to Pelham Bay and were sitting in Jody's Oldsmobile outside of Donna's family home at 2860 Bury Avenue. Shortly after they arrived, Donna's parents, Mike and Rose Loria, were also returning from a night out and walked by the car as the girls were talking. The Lorias invited Jody in, but their offer was declined. Donna's parents said goodnight and asked Donna not to be much longer as it was already past 1 a.m. Moments later, a man Jody would later describe as husky with black curly hair emerged from the shadows and approached the car. He stopped several feet away, reached into his jacket, and pulled out a gun. We know what happens next. But before we get to that, it's important to go back about six weeks to a late spring day in Texas. It was on the 12th of June in 1976 that a 24-year-old man named Billy Daniel Parker walked into the Spring Branch Jewelry and Loan Company, a pawn shop on Bingle Road in Houston. Mr. Parker was doing a favor for a friend. This friend, an old army buddy visiting from New York, asked if Mr. Parker would be willing to buy him a gun for protection on the long drive back to the Northeast. 
He'd do it himself, he said, but he didn't have a Texas ID, which was required to make the purchase. Mr. Parker obliged. He had served in the military with this guy. He knew him to be well-trained in firearms and a capable and responsible gun owner. Mr. Parker's friend told him that he needed the weapon for self-defense, that he didn't have a lot of money to spend, and that he wanted something simple, reliable, and deadly. When those parameters were explained to the pawn shop attendant, the only gun that was placed on the counter was a 1973 Charter Arms Bulldog 44 caliber special. The 44 is a big gun with a big kick. To fire it, you hold on tight with two hands and brace yourself or it could knock you down. The 44 is designed, they say, to kill. It expends all its energy inside the body, thereby being the ultimate in a man stopper. In other words, if a, for police work, if a man was attacking you and you fired at him with this, chances are he'd go down immediately. Whereas if you hit him with a 38, it wouldn't be as efficient. And he might have enough energy left to be, you know, to get on you and do you some damage. This particular weapon had become a favorite in the United States for exactly the reasons Mr. Parker was buying one that day. It was inexpensive, reliable, easy to use, and extremely effective. It was designed to be concealed, with no sharp edges to worry about when you carried it in your pocket or tucked into your waistband. The Bulldog is what's called a snub-nosed revolver. Snub-nosed because the barrel is less than four inches in length, which allows for the weapon to be drawn easily without fear of a long barrel getting caught on clothing. And it has a revolving chamber that holds five rounds of ammunition. And speaking of ammunition, the term caliber refers either to the diameter of the barrel or the diameter of the bullet, or both. Either way, caliber is measured in fractions of an inch or in millimeters. So the Charter Arms 44 caliber special fires bullets that are 44 one-hundredths of an inch in diameter. That's considered to be a very large and dangerous round that exits the barrel of a Charter Arms Bulldog at speeds between 700 and 1,000 feet per second. And it's not considered an accurate weapon. The snub-nosed barrel restricts accuracy to close-quarters fighting, and anything beyond 15 or maybe 20 yards would be considered outside of the gun's range. Now, the problem with Mr. Parker's purchase that day is that it was entirely illegal. It was what's called a straw purchase. A straw purchase is anything that is bought by someone who is actually authorized to buy it, but then hands that item over to someone who is not authorized to buy it. The classic example of a straw purchase is someone over the age of 21 buying alcohol for underage drinkers. Straw purchases are the most common in areas involving goods that are restricted by age or criminal record alcohol products, tobacco products, and firearms. Firearms acquired in this manner are particularly dangerous because they're almost impossible to trace, they're unregistered, and they're often used in crimes. The man Mr. Parker bought the gun from and Mr. Parker himself had no idea that the weapon would soon be connected to one of the most notorious serial killers in history. Back in Pelham Bay, six weeks later, 
Donna and Jody saw that husky man with curly black hair approach the car, stop about 20 feet away, and quickly pull a gun from the pocket of his jacket. He then assumed a crouching, combat-style stance and raised the weapon with both hands, firmly holding the pistol grip. He fired four times. Jody Valenti was shot once in the leg and would survive the attack. Donna Loria was struck in the head and killed instantly. The first victim was killed in front of her Bronx apartment building last July 29th. She was 18-year-old Donna Loria, who was sitting in a parked car with a friend late at night when her parents heard the shots. My wife comes screaming in the hall. They were shot. I ran down. By the time I got down, she was dead in the street. The assailant quickly retreated back into the darkness and disappeared. Law enforcement had very little to go on. A vague description that matched thousands of men in the city, bullets recovered that were popular and easily attainable, and really nothing else. The girls had no enemies to speak of, no angry ex-boyfriends, no disputes at work. Given the extreme nature of how terrible living conditions had become in the greater New York area, the police were obliged to chalk up this tragedy to a random act of violence. One of many that an unsuspecting public had to deal with every day across the five boroughs. But law enforcement would eventually discover that this was the worst type of attack. It was meticulously planned while at the same time completely random. The killer had a purpose and an unflinching will to carry out orders from an authority that only he understood. That night, that muggy July night in New York, the murderer drove home north on the Hutchinson River Parkway with his windows down. It was only 12 miles from where he lived, a lonely apartment in Yonkers overlooking the Hudson River. He could make it in about 20 minutes. He had begun it. He had obeyed and met the demands of his master for now. He wondered what would be asked of him next and if he had the strength to once again answer the call. Over the next four months, as the NYPD began to make connections in a series of attacks, the press would alert the citizens of New York to be aware of a lunatic roaming the streets and dubbed him the 44 caliber killer. But long before that nickname would come to be synonymous with fear and violence, on this night in July of 1976, as the killer returned home, successful in the evening's hunt, he and he alone knew his true identity. He was the son of Sam. On the next episode of The Devil Within, A Season in Hell, who was this madman targeting young women across the city? Where did he come from? And what in his life could possibly have turned him into the monster that he became. That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within, A Season in Hell is a Cloud 10 Media production recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, 
Brandon Ward. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.